So this morning we're going <clears> to, <throat> it'll get there. So this morning we're going to continue our series called Follow. Uh, our one word series, Follow. And I'm sure there were like more creative ways to say that. But honestly, I, I think that, that were, we to, were we to give it some other creative title of, of some other thing, it, it would sort of almost detract from the core idea of where it is that we're going as a church. We're following someone. We're keeping in step, step for step, behind Jesus. We're walking through in this series then exactly what it means to go step by step to be a disciple of this man that we call Jesus. This man who is also God. This man who walked on the earth, who showed us what it means to be human in the most human of ways that God has ever meant for it to be. But then not just that, that he also, as God, worked to redeem us to save us, to bring us back into a relationship with him. And he invites us to walk with him. Not to mimic him, not to become him, not to become just like him, simply to follow him. To walk with him. I came across this, uh, this quote by the author James K.A. Smith this week. And I think ultimately it kind of sums up this idea of what we're trying to get at. He says, discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and to crave a world where he is all in all. So this is key then to our understanding of a Christian life, to be a part of a community that we call the church in giving our life to Jesus, that when Jesus asks us to follow him, when he asks us, just as he asked Peter, do you love me? What he's really asking is, do you want me? Do you desire me? Do you want to be with God? Do you want what God has? Do you want what he wants? Because if you believe that God is everything that he says he is, that he is a glorious and he is a good and he is a gracious father, and that we are his children, then you cannot intellectualize or theorize yourself into a relationship with him. That's just not how it works. Following is not this process of intellectualizing a relationship with somebody and then you have it. Uh, there's no other place in our, our, that we would think of in any other relationship where we, we assume that that's how it works, that I can theorize myself into something and then I'm, I will, it will I'm automatically materialize around me. That's science fiction. 
It's not how relationships actually work. It's not how following somebody works. Instead, what do you have to do? You have to act. You have to pursue. You have to physically, emotionally, mentally commit yourself to following. You have to chase after Jesus. You have to follow after him and after his ways. Following is a decidedly active effort. So we're about halfway through our series now, and we're, we're talking about step four. Step four, which is to remain. Now step one, let's go over them real quick. Step one is to believe. Step one is to believe, to hear the voice of God in his word as it is spoken and through his creation to see God for who he actually is and not what others would have us think he might be. And step two, so what is step two? Repent. repent. All right, we got this. Step two is repent. Step one, believe. Step two is repent. To recognize that on our own, by ourselves, we will fail to find our satisfaction, our relief, our rest, our value, our meaning in, in us. Because just as, as good and as glorious and as gracious as God is, we will not be that in comparison. By comparison, we will not be that. And because of that, we cannot find our satisfaction, our hope, our protection in ourselves. But in God, we will. So the only recourse that we would have is to turn from all the things that we have sought after before to find those things. And instead, to seek after God, to go where God is, right? To follow him is to go where he is. And as we do that, we find our rest. We find our hope. We find our satisfaction in God. Now, step three is to follow. Step three is to follow. And to follow means to know and to desire the heart of Jesus. And as a result, when we know and we desire that heart, we're committing then to loving and serving God's people because we want what he wants and we desire what he desires. And, and Jesus is a good shepherd and he's shepherding people. And so we want a shepherd. We want to be shepherds. We want to care and, and support and commit because we're wanting what he wants. Our desires are aligning with his. His will and our wills become one. Not our will on top, but his will. His will takes over ours. And we will go wherever he leads us. Now, as I mentioned last week, these, these last few steps, the ones following the step to follow, they're going to be progressively building upon this foundation of believing and repenting and following. Now, step four is to remain. And so as we walk through this step, as we walk through this phase, we're going to ask this question. When the way that we're following gets hard and challenging and difficult and frustrating, 
When you get tired or restless or discouraged, will you walk away? Or will you continue? Will you stay the course? So we're going to be in John chapter, uh, John chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to them. Otherwise, it will be up on the screen. John chapter 15, uh, verse 1. Context for where we're at. Context for where we're at. Uh, John chapter 15, Jesus is in the middle of having this discussion with his disciples. Um, <clears throat> they've been sitting together at this, this Passover meal. And Jesus knows this is his last meal. This is his, his last chance. Chapter 13, Jesus says, he knows that the hour has come to depart from the world and to go to his father. Jesus knows this. He's sitting down for this meal and he knows his hour has come. Constantly in the book of John, he's always saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come to reveal to you who I am. My hour has not yet come. And now Jesus says, the hour has come. He knows his hour has come. And so what Jesus is doing now is he's sort of revealing every last bit of himself that he can to his disciples because he knows that his disciples are going to be the one that continue the work of the mission, to carry it on, to reveal the Father through the revealing of Jesus as he's revealed in the Spirit. So John, John also mentions this amazing thing, chapter, chapter 13, verses 1. He says, because Jesus is saying, uh, he knows his hour has come. And then he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is Jesus loving his followers to the very end. This is how he does it. So Jesus is trying to impart as much as he possibly can to his disciples before he leaves. So he tells them he's leaving, so you should love one another. Everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another, he says. Jesus tells them that he cannot, you cannot go where I'm going, but it's okay. Don't worry about it. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You will know the way that I'm going. And so one of his disciples then asks, well, how will we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way to follow, and I am the life, and I am the truth. Another says, show us the Father. That will be enough for us to know and believe. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, if you've heard my voice, you have seen and heard my Father. I have revealed him to you. Then Jesus tells them, I'm giving you my peace, my peace I give to you. And then he's also giving them help in the form of the Holy Spirit, who is being sent after he leaves. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you all things, and he's going to remind you of everything that I have told you. Jesus is showing them this way to life as it is found in the Father. The restless heart will find its rest in the Father as it is revealed in the Son and refreshed and reminded in the Spirit. And then Jesus says this. 
Chapter verse 15, or chapter 15, verse one. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit. Because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So Jesus is saying here, Jesus is like this life-giving vine. And not just a vine. He says he's the true vine. The true vine. Now, hold on to that image for a moment of the true vine. We're going to get to that. But then he says, you are branches. You're branches. You're branches of the vine. The vine is the primary. The branches come out from the vine. The life that you have is not your own. Life does not come from you. You do not produce it. You don't, have, you don't make your own life. You can't even direct or control your own life, Jesus says. It flows through you. It flows through you. Jesus says these branches, they produce fruit. They flourish and they thrive and they grow and they expand and they give way to even more life. And they just continue to climb and spread and increase and move. But only if they remain connected to the vine. As soon as they're disconnected, they stop. Jesus is the vine you are the branch. The goal is not to become the vine. You will never be a vine. You will not replace the vine. Jesus is the vine. You are the branch. The goal is not to become the vine. It's to remain with the vine. It's to just stay connected to the vine. Jesus uses this one word over and over again in the Greek text here. And, and it's this word that's remain, right? And, and in Greek, this word is meno. Meno. Everybody say meno. Meno. This word meno, and it means to persist, to continue, to wait for, to stay. 
In some of your Bibles, this word is translated as abide. Abide. To live. To live. Now, think about all of those words for just one second. Persist. Continue. Wait. Stay. Live. What's one thing that each of those things has in common? There's, there's, a, there's something that I think each one of those words kind of has in common, and that is time. It takes time to persist. It takes time to continue something. It takes time to wait for something. It takes time to stay. Those aren't instantaneous things, right? You say, I will stay with you. How long are you going to stay? I will persist in this. How long are you going to persist? I will continue with that. Well, did you continue and then you can immediately continue to not do something? No, it, you have to, for how long will you continue? To remain means to take time. Now, it's one thing to make a momentary decision to follow Jesus. It's another thing entirely to continue following, to persist in it, to endure through ups and downs and highs and lows and exciting seasons and then the mundane, boring periods. It takes time to stick with it, to form your life around following to allow God to actually do a work in you to transform your heart. A work that may not be instantaneous. It may take time to develop and change and grow and see the effects of that happening. And there's another thing about this word, meno. I don't know if, you, if you've thought about it, but to remain is quite possibly the most actively passive word there could be. Now, now, let me explain what I mean by that. The most actively passive word there is. How hard is it to wait for something? When I have a package that's coming in the mail, and I know, I have Amazon Prime, it only takes two days. How hard is it to wait for something? I'm like, I just ordered it 30 minutes ago. <laughs> it takes effort, right? We have to engage ourselves in the process of doing nothing, anticipating something coming. How much effort does it to require us sometimes to just stay put, especially in hard situations? especially in uncomfortable situations, especially in challenging moments? How hard is it to just sit and not get up and move or go or walk away or leave? How hard is it to stay? How much effort does it require us? If I want to build a relationship with someone, the recipe is to be persistent in being present with them for a prolonged period of time. 
but there's not a whole lot that I can do to manufacture a relationship. I could stalk them on Facebook. I mean, I would help some, somewhat, maybe. I could learn about them from their friends. I could read a book on human, uh, human development and interpersonal communication. But I can't, that helps me know about them. That helps me know, like, how to say things when I'm with them. But when you're building a relationship, are those things that you do with somebody? No. Why? Because that would be weird. <laughs> that would be just strange to like engage. Like the only way that I can do this is first if I do all my homework and I prepare and then I go and then friendship, boom, this happens. No, that's not how it works. Relationships take time. But even in that time, I can't manufacture a relationship from nothing. It requires work. But at the end of it, I'm not wholly responsible for the final product. To meno something, to remain in something, is the most actively passive thing that you can do. Now, sometimes our tendencies, like kind of our gut instinct, is to treat our spiritual life like carpentry. In carpentry, when you're building something, right, woodworking or, or something like this, you have raw materials, you have a set of plans, you have tools, and the goal is to take all those raw materials and you shape and you manipulate them into something beautiful and functional and useful that looks nice and that works. And if you have the right supplies and the right skills, then you can, you can build yourself a table. Now, how nice and level that table is, or how well finished it is, is completely dependent on who? On you, on your skill set, your ability to measure and cut and sand and route and stain. But the end product is your product. You have produced it. And you can take full credit for that work. You can take as much pride in it as you want to, however nice or terrible it looks, because it's yours, exactly the way it is. Because every step of the way, you are in control of the process, right? It's your work. The temptation is to treat our spiritual lives the same way. We want to be responsible for the end result, right? We want, when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, we want that to be a reflection of how hard we worked at manufacturing and forming the spiritual life into something that God would approve of. And when he says, well done, we want to take all the credit for it. The impulse inside of us, the voice in our head, wants us to be able to take credit for the spiritual maturity or closeness that we have with God. The temptation is to take our pride in our spiritual accomplishments. How much do we give? How much we serve? How much we learn? And because however flawed or how imbalanced it is, however, however well we do in that, well or fail, at least we know it was self-made. I'm a self-made man. Whether I failed in it or not, 
at least it was my job. And I know, I know that I failed here, I did well here, I did awesome here, I totally tanked that thing. But I can push it and say, this was me. This is what I did for you. Jesus does not say, I am the lumber yard, you are the carpenter. Fashion for yourself a life that uses the materials that I give you. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. See, it's no mistake that Jesus, who is by trade a carpenter, does not use carpentry for his example. He uses agriculture. He uses farming. He uses gardening to illustrate life. Mark chapter 4, verse 26, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like this. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The, to- the soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the full grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle, because the harvest has come. You cannot manipulate spiritual life into something that you take credit for. But you have a responsibility to persist. If you're a farmer and you're planting something, you don't need to train a plant how to replicate cells and convert sunlight and carbon dioxide and and water into fuel for itself to grow. And you can, you can direct and you can help support it, but you will not tell that plant where it's growing or how well it's growing or how fruitful it's going to be. That's not your job. The work of the farmer is not to do the miraculous, but the mundane. To till, to, to sow, to water, to harvest. The plant contains everything that it needs to do to grow throughout all of those stages. All the farmer does is cultivate the environment that's required for life. And the seed and a lot of time will do the rest. See, there are, when, when you're talking about seeds and plants and, and life in general, there are three things that are required for any living thing to thrive. You need a viable seed that will grow into something a human being, an animal, a plant, whatever. You need a life-giving environment. Okay, it needs to not be scary or, or threatening. And you need time. There is no instantaneous life growth process. It takes time. Our spiritual lives need the same thing. Our spiritual lives need exactly the same thing. We need a viable seed, the good news of Jesus. We need a life-giving environment. What is the spiritual culture? What is the spiritual environment around which the seed of the gospel will take root and grow? And you need time. You need a lot of time. 
willing to take that time? Our job is not to construct or manufacture our, our own spirituality. Our job is merely to be gardeners, to cultivate it, to invest time and energy and provide the right environment for it to grow. You cannot control how your spiritual life grows or where it will take you. You can't determine in your spiritual life, I'm going to want these spiritual gifts. I want to be involved in these specific services and ministries. I want to live in this city. I want to participate in these things. And my spiritual life is going to grow this way. And I'm going to become this sort of mature Christian. You cannot control how your spiritual life grows or where it will take you. You cannot determine what God is going to do with your life when you hand it over to him. But you have a role to play. To remain connected to the life giver. Remaining with Jesus is the most actively passive thing that you can do. So, I mean, that's, that's all well and good. That's, that's to remain. Our call is to remain. The goal is clearly to stay connected, to persist in this life. But that is not always how it goes, right? That is not always how it goes. Because gardening and the patience required for gardening is hard work. It doesn't produce instant results. Discouragement, frustration, inconvenience, discomfort. When those things start to set in and settle in us, it can be very easy to disconnect from the true vine and attach ourselves to other vines that don't require so much of that radical transformation but allow us to kind of stay the same. Old habits, old friends, old voices that speak to the old man, not the new man. This is the problem, the condition of apathy. Apathy is the enemy of remaining. Apathy is a lack of enthusiasm or interest or concerns for the things of God. And it's one of the first signs of our spiritual decay and withering. Apathy leads us from a passion for God to a passion for anything else other than God. <clears throat> and Jesus says, if you do not menno, if you don't remain and persist, if you give in to an apathetic heart, an apathetic lifestyle, then you will wither and dry up and you'll become like a useless, lifeless branch. Now, apathy is a tough condition for us to overcome. So we're currently like two months into the, the new year, 2018. And uh, every January 1st, as, you, as most of you know, usually about half of Americans, they're going to make some sort of New Year's resolution. So that means probably half of us did. I, I have since given up in the last couple of years on giving them because I am part of the other percentage that fails to keep them. Um, 
I try. Now, most of, these, most of these resolutions are normally associated with some kind of like self-improvement. Um, uh, weight management, that's the top one. Money management, that's number two. And relationships, that's number three. Some sort of healing, restoration, improving of relationships, that's number three. 30% of our resolutions fail in the first week. 30% fail in the first week. By the end of January, 40% have failed. And by July, 60% have failed to keep their resolutions. Now, why is this? Why is it so hard to keep these New Year's resolutions? Because we give them, we have all the intent of the world in committing to them, right? If I make a resolution, I'm like, I'm going to lose 10 pounds in the next year. I'm not saying that, like, facetiously. Be like, oh, it'd be nice to lose 10 pounds, but, you know, whatever happens, happens. No, it's like I'm saying, I want this. I'm going to commit to it. I'm going to see it happen. We come in with the best of intentions. But why do we have such a hard time continuing, remaining in those resolutions? I was talking to... uh, this week to a friend of mine, and he's studying to become a a personal trainer. And he told me that our bodies, like our physical bodies, are programmed inherently to take the path of least resistance. So if if you're slouching in your chair, if if you hunch over your shoulders while you're typing, uh, if you refuse to walk or run anywhere, then over time, he said, your physical construction will begin to alter and change to fit your most common posture. You're going to literally grow, your bones are literally going to grow to support your unhealthy habits. Did you know this? I did not know this. But it made a lot of sense to me. Because... When my bones and my my muscles are tuned and recalibrated into lethargicness, then what happens is anytime we try to to make that resolution to get healthier physically, say, and let's say I say my, my, my goal is to have straighter posture. When I start moving my body to have a better posture, my body, my bones, my muscles are literally resisting resistance. They're rejecting this plan. They're like, yeah, no, 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 you're not going to want to do that. So when you, when you start standing up straight, what happens? It hurts. It physically hurts to have good posture. But that's the whole point of being good posture. It's, it's not supposed to hurt. But my body now hurts to be good. It rejects it. I have literally conformed to apathy physically. And I think it's not even just then. Um, like, uh, now that, you know, like, in, in old posture and, and hunching over, you start, like, conforming to bad health. It's also even psychologically now where it's like I start driving every, every day. I drive past the, the gym, and as I do that, I start sweating. <laughs> like, my back hurts. Like, I just, I'm, no, I'm too tired. Like, I wasn't tired before, but now as I'm driving through, now I'm tired, even as I drive past. 
Like, even psychologically, I'm now conformed to an, apath- an apathetic lifestyle, to unhealth. My body has changed chemically to support my lifestyle. The same thing even happens in our minds. As I said before, right after this, I'm, I'm driving to Sacramento, then I'm getting on a plane, and I'm flying to Portland, Oregon to have class for, um, for five days. I'm taking a class on the history of Israel. And uh, I'm exhausted just thinking about it. <laughs> I have to read and I have to take notes on like 800 pages in preparation for tomorrow. And, uh, and I've been out of seminary for two years. And everything in me is rejecting this idea of going to school. Literally, when I sit down to read, I'm fine. But then I sit down to read and all I want to do is take a nap. I didn't before, and now I do. I'm like, what is going on? I'm just exhausted. I just have to close this book now. My academic mind is in a state of decay. It's withering. It's withering. It's disconnected from the vine of education from seminary. Now, Jesus is warning us of the same thing spiritually. He is warning us of a spiritual apathy, this condition that is pulling us and prodding us towards the path of least resistance, towards the path of least change. And what he says is it's going to lead us to dead works and dead flesh. What are dead works? What is this state of apathy? How do you know that you're in a state of apathy? See, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul explains the works of the flesh. He explains this state. He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, argument, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, Anything similar. Paul says, I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice, those who remain in such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Apathy is the problem. Apathy is the enemy to remaining. There is a solution to this. See, a lot of time, our apathy comes from us being spiritually out of shape, right? We're spiritually out of shape beings. And it's it's no different from from our bodies. We don't need a new solution. That's the thing. You don't need to have a new, different solution. My solution to Getting in better shape is not to find a new thing, right? A new diet, a new form of exercise where I don't have to move. Because honestly, that's all I'm looking for. Something, you know, where it would be like, in the next five days, I'm going to lose everything, right? No, that's not, that's not the goal. That's what we want to do, but that's not the, that's not the solution. What we need to do is just to practice 
remaining. Practice. We're out of practice. See, remaining feels like sometimes, I, I, I would guess, the, the most unattractive non-solution to progress. When something isn't working, we, we, we think it's because the methods are broken somehow. But every plant, remember, we're not carpentry. We're not cabinets. We're plants in God's life economy. Every plant goes through these seasons of loss, and every plant is going to experience a season of drought and discouragement. But what does a plant need to change that? Do you need to change the plant's lifestyle? Like, do you need to change something about the plant? No. The plant needs the same things to grow. It doesn't change. Water, soil, sunlight. That recipe is the same regardless of whether the plant is struggling or has life. It's the same recipe. Time. Water, soil, sun, time. Our greatest challenge in faith is not to conquer our sin. Conquering our sins is not necessarily our problem because the conquering of sin has already been done for us. Jesus has already conquered your sins. He has already defeated death. He has already overcome that. Our greatest challenge is not to be the overcomers. Our greatest challenge is to remain faithful to the basic practices and disciplines of faith, even when we don't feel like it. The solution to apathy, to spiritual disconnect, is to practice to practice, to renew daily habits of everyday life, day by day, that reconnect us to Jesus. Now, what do I mean by this? How, how are we, what are these daily habits? What are we seeking to remain through? What are the practices of that? Are you having, let's say this, are you having trouble hearing the voice of God? Is it being drowned out by other voices in your life? Are there other things that are pulling up and telling you counterproductive things to life? How do you discern the voice of God? You read his words. He is speaking through his words. He's speaking through his words. That's how you, you have to discern the voice of God by knowing the voice of God, by spending time with the voice of God, by, by reading the voice of God and letting it sink into you, meditating on it, giving, uh, do you give designated periods of silence and solitude where nothing else is going on in your day to let it fill you, let it speak to you, chewing on it. If you spend 20 minutes or less, for many of us, I'd probably argue it's less, reading the Bible, and then you spend two hours talking to, listening to talk radio or watching TV or spending time talking to friends who might have other agendas or perusing social media, it's probably more, more than two hours for social media, which voice are you choosing to listen to? 
How much time? Your time reveals your, your, your choice in listening. And I think the reason why we struggle with that sometimes is because hearing the voice of God activates change in us. Hearing the voices of others activates absolutely nothing. It's true. Change is hard, so why maybe I just won't change? It's easier not to go through a period of change, but listening to the voice of God activates change within us. We need that change to live. We have to remain saturated in the truth of God, in the words of God, if we want to hear it and believe it. So how consistently are you saturated in the word? Who or what encourages you to think or pray about his word? Or have you substituted his word for other foods? Not nourishing foods, junk foods even. Remain practice daily, being saturated in God's word. Now, that takes time. That takes time. Don't expect in your practices, as you're developing a practice of spending time with God, that you are going to come out and say, tomorrow, this is, this is how resolutions fail. Tomorrow, I'm going to read the Bible for two hours, and I'm going to have three hours of meditation in the morning and at night, and then I will spend time talking to nobody, and I will not listen to any radio, and I will just fast for the whole day. You can talk to my wife. I have failed every single activity, like exercise activity I have done because I overdo it every single time. I bought a jump rope uh, to, to get more in shape. The first time out, I jump roped for 45 minutes. I have never jump roped again. Uh, one day I decided I was going to start running. So I bought five pound ankle weights and I strapped them to my legs and I started running hills the first day. I have never run again. You can overdo the exercise process, the practice of spiritual life. You cannot expect instant results. I always expect instant results in my exercise, and that's why I always fail it. You have to build up to those things. If you don't read the Bible at all, try spending five minutes opening up God's Word. If you don't know where to start, start at the beginning. It doesn't have to be perfect. If you, have a bat, if you have a hard time engaging in silence, just try turning off the radio on your drive. One time. Just once. You don't have to do it all the time. You don't have to go on, on, a, on a, an hour-long prayer walk. Spend five minutes on your car drive. Give it to God. Don't talk. Just listen. Small things. You don't have to fast two days in a row right at the beginning. You don't have to do a 40-day fast. Try skipping lunch. And when you get hungry, think, I'm fasting because I'm hungry for God. Just spend one, one time, not all the time. Small 
opportunities to open the door to new practices of remaining saturated in the life of God. Remain saturated in God's word, but also remain integrated in God's people. Do you spend time in relationship with the people of God? Because God uses his people to change and correct and rebuke and to shape you. He uses pastors, teachers, and other believers to challenge your thinking, to hold you accountable, to encourage right thinking about God, to keep you thinking clearly about who he is and what he wants. Every healthy believer is an interdependent part of the church, and there are no exceptions. We have to practice remaining integrated with God's people if we want to serve them and to love them. So how integrated are you in the church? How connected with his people? How available, vulnerable, teachable are you with others? Do you schedule time where you allow others to know you, to hear you, to speak to you, to challenge you? It doesn't have to be all the time, but try it once. Give yourself that moment to begin the practice, the spiritual habit of community. Remain saturated in God's word. Remain integrated with God's people. Remain connected to God's spirit. When Jesus left, he tells his disciples, I will send another in my place, a paraclete, a helper, a counselor, And he's going to bridge this connection with the Father. Remain connected to me, but I am leaving. That's okay. The Holy Spirit will come and he will connect you. You will remain with him. The Holy Spirit is a helper and he convicts you of sin and he prepares your heart and he sends you out and he leads you along this unique path that God has for you. Remaining connected to the vine activates change. Change can be hard. When God's word says things that challenge and shape us and encourage us to move, it's easy to just close it up and to ignore it. When God's people challenge us or rebuke us or convict us, it's easy to leave them behind and seek people who don't want us to change, to remain the same. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us and convicts you and scares us sometimes to go where we would not want to go, to be led where we would rather not be led, that may prompt us to want to silence the Spirit. To ignore the Spirit of God, to fill the space of Him speaking to you and informing you and and, and nudging you forward, to justify, rationalize, Distill silence the spirit. This is where the spiritual practice of prayer can change things. We can be empowered to remain and persist and endure through prayer. Because prayer, quiet, listening, two-way conversation with God, not one way, Two-way. Two-way conversation 
invites the Spirit back in to connect us, to convict us, to send us. Do you allow the Holy Spirit room to speak to you, to change you? And you're going to find out if that is the case when change does begin to happen. And you will begin to bear life-giving fruit. Not the dead fruit of apathy or the dead flesh or dead works, but good works, good fruit, good flesh. Paul goes on to say in in Galatians 5, he says, uh, first he says, the fruit of, uh, the the works of the flesh are, are obvious, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires, its apathetic tendencies. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us follow behind the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. How vital is your relationship to the Holy Spirit? How may you in your life be rejecting or disobeying his promptings, his urgings, his pullings? And if you have been remaining, as you remain, which of those fruits do you begin to see cropping up in your life? They start taking place. God is working in you. God is working in you. You are not a carpenter. There is nothing you have to fashion. God is the one working in you right now, and he is going to be seeing it to completion. Your job is not to complete his work. Your job is to keep in step with the Spirit and remain and persist and continue throughout the process. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to end with this. The author says, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured, remained through such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. No discipline, verse 11, seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I encourage you to begin the practice of remaining. Just practice it. Spend time in it. It will take time to grow. But it will be the most life-giving thing that you can do. To wait for God to work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would help us to stay with you. When the urge gets there to leave and to go and to walk away and to 
to find the easier road. We just ask that you would encourage us to pull at us, to push on us, to remind us to stay true, to persist, to hold fast. God, I ask that as you continue to work in us and burn away and prune, as it says in, in, in your word, to prune away at those things that do not bear fruit, that, that wither and die within us, that as you prune those things gradually and sometimes painfully, but so carefully, God, that we would begin to see new life renewed within us, that it would refresh our conversations with our friends here. It would refresh our, our opportunities to speak and to share. It would refresh and reinvigorate our, our desire to know you and to know you in your word. It would refresh our hearts, God. To love and to minister and to serve and to care for, to spend time with one another, to relate to one another, to hear one another, to hurt with one another, to experience joy. We ask that in your name. Amen.